Second Samuel chapter 7. Now, I'm not sure that these chapters are necessarily in chronological order. Sometimes they may be grouped more thematically, so it may be that we should see this chapter as related by theme to the idea of the choice of Jerusalem and the idea of what might be built in Jerusalem and things like that. At any rate, would somebody read chapter 7 verses 1 to 3? Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now, I dwell in the house of Sinai, but the ark of God dwells in the tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So, what's David's idea? more permanent house for Yes, and, and I mean, he's got good reasoning. You know, he dwells in a nice house himself. What a pity that, you know, the Lord has to dwell in the house he dwells in. You know, when he stops and thinks about it, that just doesn't seem quite right. And so he feels like it would honor the Lord to give him a, a better place. You know, that's, a, that's an encouraging, you know, a, a, a attitude for him to have. And uh, what he, he talks to Nathan. Nathan's a prophet of God. So what's Nathan's response to him? Do it. Yes. Amen. Go right ahead and do it. That's, that's great. Now what we are going to learn from this is that not even a prophet has the prerogative to speak where God has not spoken. You know, a prophet's good ideas are no better than the prophet. A prophet's inspired message is what you have to listen to. But Nathan thinks it sounds great. Comments or questions about that? All right. Uh, Does that ever happen with the apostles? Uh, well, probably. Uh, I don't, you know, I wouldn't be at all surprised. I mean, certainly it happens in their actions. I mean, when Peter denied Christ or when he withdrew from the Gentiles and things like that. Uh, so there undoubtedly were times when they acted in ways that were not according to the gospel. Right. I mean, one thing that seems similar is Paul went to go into Asia in the second journey, I think. And God said, no, I want you to Mesopotamia. So Macedonia, yeah. 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 So, uh, but, you know, there's a difference of what we have, for example, in the inspired letters that they wrote and so forth, is the word of God. Uh, but, but they were not suddenly rendered perfect in judgment and perfect in actions just because they were at times God's mouthpieces. And they're pretty clear, whatever is their uh, opinion to in 1 Corinthians 7. Yes. States, this is my opinion. You don't have to do this. Yes, though I think the point there was not so much it's my opinion. It's not so much it's my opinion as it's my opinion. And the idea is this is in spirit inspired opinion, not a spirit inspired command. I don't think he's trying to say this is my idea, not the spirit's. Because he said, I think I also have the spirit of God. But that not everything the spirit says is a command. Sometimes it's an opinion, it's a matter of wisdom. All right, um, how about uh, 4 to 17? But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word? 
with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and cut off, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish that throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Okay. So this is actually the longest speech of the Lord that we have in the Bible since the days of Moses. <laughs> um, and, and the Lord's got a lot to say about this. Um, first of all, in verse 5, are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? Um, the Lord did not choose for it to be David who would build him a house. In 1 Chronicles 22, 8, But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Behold, a son will be born to you, who will give you, uh, uh, who shall be a man of rest, and he shall build a house. So God's intention was not that David build it, but that Solomon build it. Where was that reference? That was 1 Chronicles 22, 8, 9. You've also got 1 Chronicles 28, 3 and following. Uh, there's several references to this uh, idea that God did not want David to be the one to build the house. He wanted Solomon to be the one. David was a man of war, a man of bloodshed. Solomon was a man of peace. God thought it was more appropriate for Solomon to build it. He also says, you know, I'm not really that, like that big a deal. I've been living in a tent for a long time. I never asked you to build a tent for a house for me. Um, and, and so it's not like something that God needs. And then he speaks of what God has done for him. God has been with him. God is the one who has made him who he is. Again, God doesn't depend on David. David depends on the Lord. And then what God ultimately says is, no, you won't build me a house. I'm going to build a house for you. In the sense that God was going to give him a, a lineage, a, a dynasty. He was going to be with his descendants. End of verse 11, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete, I will raise up your descendant after you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So 
in part, God is saying to David, there is going to be an enduring dynasty. Your descendants are going to uh, be uh, kings. Now, that was not true of Saul. Saul was a one and out. Uh, there was no descendant of his other than Ishbosheth, sort of, that reigned, uh, but no continuing dynasty, uh, as there was with David. That's part of what he's saying. And in fact, he says in verse 14, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. There's a disciplinary clause. You know, when his descendants are unfaithful, God will discipline, but he will not yank the kingship away from David's family. Uh, certainly, they perhaps won't all be what they ought to be, but God will, will discipline them and continue to make them his uh, kings. But he, he speaks even beyond that. He says in verse 16, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. There's a forever nature of what he's saying. There's a descendant of David that would establish a forever kingdom. And so this prophecy, while it, continue, it, can, it considers like the dynasty of David, it also talks about Jesus as the fulfillment of that forever promise. He is the one through whom the house would be established forever. Um, so, so you've got a lot of things in this passage. It's a key passage all throughout the rest of the Old Testament. You look back at this passage, uh, and he talks about the, the blessings of David and the son of David, and uh, the key of David, and various things about David that reference this special promise that it's through his descendant that God would restore his kingship. And in the New Testament, you have all kinds of references to Jesus being the son of David. He's rebuilding the fallen tabernacle of David, uh, Acts chapter 15 and so forth. So this is a key chapter in the Bible, a key promise that God was going to give an everlasting king to David's lineage, which was the Messiah. Comments and questions on this section? Beto. Uh, verse 13 and 14, talking about the forever kingdom, and then in verse 14, uh, you know, I'll be to him a father and He'll be to me a son. Is 13 talking about Solomon? Like, I don't understand. Does he just switch around as he goes? He's talking about both, but there's some aspects that only would refer to one or another. He's kind of talking about the kingship of the family of David as a whole. But if he talks about it being forever, that's obviously not Solomon himself. If he talks about committing iniquity, that's obviously not the Messiah. So, but, but he's not just distinguishing, okay, A is Solomon, B is the Messiah. He's intertwining those as the promises to David's descendants. I might notice one other thing with you that I think is helpful to notice in this passage, and that is in verse 14, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. That is not necessarily talking just about Jesus. We think of Jesus being God's son and, uh, you know, inherently or something. Maybe he was in some senses. But this is talking about what God does when he makes one of David's descendants kings. You know, God would establish a father-son relationship with the king. So like in Psalm 2 that reflects on this, you know, 
uh, the decree of the Lord, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Well, when did, did God beget Jesus' son? When he put him in his king. Now, in that passage that was talking about, talking about him being elevated, being installed uh, as, as the king, that's him becoming the son. In the same way that Solomon and all the lineage became sons of God as they became king. It's not talking about the eternal relationship in this passage. It's talking about God developing a father-son relationship with the one who is put in as king. Now that may have raised more questions than it answered than it answers, but uh, better. Are there any prophecies like this one that just goes, okay, this is one, and there's another? It's like, it's like intertwining each other. Yeah, most of them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, most of the prophecies have some aspect of more immediate fulfillment. Say Psalm 22. That's a, that's a psalm or Psalm 16. Psalms of David, maybe even Psalm 2, but Psalm 16 and, and, and Psalm 22, Psalms of David, Psalm 69 as well, that, that are about David's life, but, but, but there's something deeper than that. You know, if you, if you really look at it in, strictly according to what he says, if you really see the fullness of that, it, it goes way beyond David to Jesus. So I think most prophecies have sort of a shadowy, immediate fulfillment, but they have an ideal fulfillment in the Messiah. Like the primary, secondary? Yeah, like a type, antitype. Like a shadow and the, the ultimate. Because maybe I'm just confusing myself more, because I don't see it. I just see like one applying just to one, and the other one just applying to the other. Like, uh, for example, the kingdom lasting forever. That doesn't apply to Solomon's kingdom. Right. It doesn't last forever. Right. That's just Christ. But then him saying, like, like you said, calling, saying that he'll have a relationship, that's kind of a primary, secondary. So this, that, that's what I was referring to, just having a prophecy that just applies one to one person and then the other one just to another person. I think it's common to have a prophecy that in one sense would apply in the foreground, but if you press the language to its maximum, it would apply only to the Messiah. I think you've got a lot of passages like that. That, well, this is about David, but really, if you just really press this, um, I think Psalm 16 is a good example. When he says, you won't leave my soul in Hades. You know, you won't suffer, you won't let my body decay. I think to David, that's just a promise that God would be with him in death and would raise him. But if you really press that language, both Peter and Paul in Acts 2 and Acts 13 say that ultimately that's not so true of David because his body did decay. If you really press the language, if you really see what it's ultimately saying, it's talking about something much beyond David. It's talking about Jesus. So I, I think that, you know, the forever aspect, I think that starts with Solomon, but it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Now, certainly Jesus did not have any sin. So you couldn't say that aspect was applying to Jesus. Yeah, so Jason. Verse 14, I may have us wrong, but I think it's quoted in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 5. It is. Referring yes. to Jesus. Yes. So is it, just, is it possible to you know, just say this verse does reference Jesus, but you know, the idea of how the, next, the second sentence begins is if he commits inequity. So clearly Jesus didn't commit inequity, so he would not have to be chastised you know, by the Father. The only... Um, sin that he was chastised for was arson. 
Yes, although Psalm 89's exposition to some extent of this psalm, he, he works on that a lot. In Psalm 89:30, if his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, but I will not break off my loving kindness from him nor deal falsely in my faithfulness, etc. I mean, and, and some things he says later on also, I, I think are an indication that he was thinking about how the descendants of David would be unfaithful. Okay. Yeah, I guess I was just struggling, like, since Hebrews quotes it, you know, why would we just cut mid-sentence or mid-verse and say this part's referring to Jesus, this part isn't? Yeah, I'm okay if we say that the if would mean as far as Jesus' part was concerned, you know, that wasn't applicable to him. But I do think he is including in this the chastening for David's direct descendants. So uh, with verse 14, the father-son relationship, would that be promised only to David's descendants that will be, that will come to the throne? Yes. In this context, I think so. Yeah, that, that's hard for us. You know, we, I, I think a lot of times we've not noticed that. But go back to Psalm 2. This day I've begotten you. That's not talking about when Jesus created, when, when God created Jesus. I don't believe God created Jesus. You know, so how does it mean this day I've begotten you? This day I've put you in this king. This day I established this father-son king relationship. Yeah, Eric. In verse 10, it's interesting that it talks about giving them a new land, basically, and at this point they had already been given the promised land. Typically we'll say that the promises to Abraham in Genesis 12 about the land was only fulfilled in Joshua, but there's a sense in which the land promise even applies to the new covenant in the sense that we have safety and security that the Israelites never had in the promised land. We have that in Christ. Good point. I'll agree. Mm -hmm. Right. Do you think that kind of this kind of shadow and then ultimate... Uh, idea and prophecy cast is a lot about the nature of God because it, I mean I think when I think about it I see that all over the Bible like yeah, yeah. Genesis 12 1 through 3 when uh, I think so, maybe so. yeah uh, yeah when um, when he's giving the promises to Abraham there's you know the land and the seed which happen relatively quickly but then there's a seed promise that happens much later and it's still happening and then all the way up to Jesus when Jesus says you know here's my kingdom but then there's the kingdom of heaven uh, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but there's also heaven. You're longing for, you're waiting for. Yeah, God works with shapes. You know, gives us a shape, and then he gives us a shape that's more concrete, but it's the same shape, you know, just with more definition or with more substance or, you know. So, I mean, God gives a lot of shadows, a lot of patterns. He's got that all over the Bible. It's really interesting, really cool. Logan. I'm jumping back a little here, but I think it's cool how... David's so willing to build God's house, unlike the people in Haggai and Zechariah and Ezra, when they were building up their own houses but forgetting about God's. Well, it's a good attitude on David's part in that sense, wasn't it? You know, because sometimes all we can think about is the house we want, and we don't even consider uh, the house of the Lord. Good point. Right. And also, going along with what Logan said, you know, just thinking, it just occurred to me that that applies to us still, like now today, because, you know, we have our earthly house, but then we have the house of God that, you know, we know God dwells within us. And so what kind of house are we giving God? Mm -hmm. What kind of house are we you know, making ourselves to be? Which is, you know, it's precisely why we study and learn. Good point. Okay. 
Is verse 6 referencing the presence of God dwelling in a specific place before he uh, manifests himself in a tent and tabernacle to the, the people of Israel? Well, well, I'll read the verse here. Um, it says, For I have dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the house of the sons of Israel. Is he referring to perhaps saying that, well, I had a, a, a house or I had some sort of location where, I, where I, my presence was specifically, and then during that time, since then, I've been living in this tent? No, I think he's saying that I have not had a permanent house from the days of Egypt till now. He All says, I've had is a tent. He even says in the rest of that verse, but I have been moving about. In the tent. So I think he's saying, I've never had more than a tent. Jason. Verse 7 is a good example of the role of, of silence, of God's silence in, in, in our authority to do or not do things. That if God has not spoken it, then we shouldn't be doing it. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. We don't, we don't act where he hasn't spoken. <laughs> Other questions or comments? Good discussion. So it's really a remarkable promise, <laughs> remarkable passage. Think about David's response to this. What do you, how do you, how do you, you know, what do you say after this? Uh, 18 to, uh, let me see here, uh, 18 to the end of the chapter, 29. And David the king went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord, my God? And what is my house and you have, that you have brought me this far? And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. Again, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. For the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all of this greatness and to let your servant know. For this reason, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what, what one nation on earth is like your people Israel, whom God once uh, went to redeem for himself, as a people to make a name for himself, to do a great thing for you, and awesome things for your land. Before your people, whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. For you have established yourself, your people Israel, as your own people forever, and you, O Lord, have become their God. Now therefore, O Lord God, the word of you, uh, the word that you have spoken concerning your servants and his house, confirm it forever, and do it as you have spoken, that your name may be magnified forever, by saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and may the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made a revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are truth, and you have promised a good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing, may the house of your servant be blessed forever. I suppose that David could have been upset about this. God's not letting him do his dream. You know, he wanted to build the house for God, but certainly David is not. He, he is overwhelmed by the grace of God. He feels so inadequate. Who, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you brought me this far? And, and he says that, and you've done so much more. 
You, you promised these great blessings to me, your servant. I believe 10 times in this prayer, he speaks of uh, David, as, or he speaks of, of himself as, as God's servant. That's a really powerful thing. You know, to be God's servant. Uh, is, is, and he sees himself that way, and he's just overwhelmed at what God has done for his servant. He says in verse 20, again, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. That's interesting. I believe what he's saying is, you know, I don't know what else to say. I don't have the words to express my gratitude. You know my heart. You know, we have that song, Listen to My Heart. And the idea is, I just can't express adequately all my gratitude and praise for you. You know, so, so you know my heart. You know how grateful I am. But words fail me. Um... And, and he's just so overwhelmed by the greatness of God. For this reason, verse 22, you are great, O Lord God, for there's none like you. There's no God besides you. And, and you've made your people great because you're our great God. You know, there's just so much to be thankful for. And he's just so overwhelmed by God and so grateful. Great emotions in this prayer. And he begs God, therefore, to do what he said. You know, he, he's not going to let the Lord go until he blesses him. Because God promised to bless him. And so he says, confirm that promise. You know, establish your word. You know, may our, my house continue forever. It's great when we pray and ask God to do what God says he wants to do. That's the right thing to pray. That's the right request to make. Requesting that God fulfill his promises uh, to us. And so that's, that's encouraging. Um, just a, a great prayer... You see so much in the reverence and respect uh, that that he has for the Lord. Comments and thoughts. Okay, it's a great chapter, Evan. I'm impressed by David in not seeking the throne. That not being the the ultimate what he's looking at as far as the kingdom. The kingship is, is nothing to him. That's, that's just what he does. He's devoted to being a servant of God. And God building his house. It's not that it's a, a, the house over Israel. His house is part of Israel. And he sees this, this promise of God of blessing Israel as just a tremendous, tremendous blessing. And the other thing I, I see in this kind of bringing the, the whole chapter together is as David wanted to do something that wasn't part of God's plan. David went to Nathan to seek God's approval. And, and you know, we discussed Nathan's hasty approval without seeking God. But at the moment God said no, David didn't he didn't turn it and, and go off pouting. He praised God. You know, and you know, as you said, you know, it's a testament to the grace of God, what God promised. But you know, we see God's blessing on those who really want to serve Him. You know, this this wasn't something that David was just flippantly, oh, well, we just need to build a house for God to be like the nations around him. You know, this was something David had apparently put a lot of thought into and was very passionate about. And you can see his passion through the rest of his life. He spends preparing for the ultimate uh, 
building of the temple. You know, he's gathering all the materials so that Solomon kind of has a head start on it. And so David's very passionate about this house for God. And, you know, even though he's not allowed to build it, you know, God is rewarding him for that, you know, that same passion we saw with him dancing and, and playing, you know, instruments. You know, we, we see that with him wanting to build this house. And so David is, is just so enthusiastic for God. And it just it shows it here in this in this uh, in the song of his. Great point. Yeah, great thoughts. Tyler. Um, just real quick, and from eighteen to the end of the chapter here, I counted at least fifteen different times that that the word your or other like possessive type verbs are used, and I, I really like that, especially in twenty. 3 and 24 when it says you redeemed for yourself from Egypt a nation you established for yourself your people so David really has a handle on the fact that, that God is, is the possessor of his house and of the people at this point I, I think the possessive nature that's kind of interesting yeah that's a, very good very encouraging other thoughts alright let's look at chapter 8 <clears throat> 